Good morning, church. We will be reading from Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, and it's on 156 of your Bible, and it will be up on the screen. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown... Among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with your word to lead and guide us into your ways. Lord, we pray that you would grant us ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to understand. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage today is, as we've just been read, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And it's a marvellous passage. We see that from verse 6. Jesus marvelled because of their unbelief. Many times the crowds, the disciples and even his enemies marvelled at Jesus and at his works. But there are only two occasions when Jesus himself marvelled. One is when the centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. When Jesus heard what the centurion said... He marvelled at him and turning to the crowd following him said, I tell you the truth, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The other occasion is here in Mark chapter 6 where he marvels at the people of Nazareth's unbelief and their lack of faith. We usually marvel at things that we appreciate, don't we? Marvellous marvellous scenery, a marvellous holiday, a marvellous meal or a a marvellous invention. 
In chapter 5, we saw three marvellous miracles. Legion changed from a demon-possessed lunatic to sitting at Jesus' feet clothed and in his right mind. Secondly, we saw the healing of the woman who had suffered for 12 years with a bleeding problem. And then, thirdly, Jesus raising Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. All marvellous things. Each of those miracles resulted in the building up and confirmation of the faith of those directly affected. Even those who rejected Jesus on those occasions believed. They just didn't want Jesus around. The Gerizines saw the miracle of Legion and they were so frightened that they told Jesus to leave. The mourners at Jairus' house laughed Jesus to scorn, but they were amazed when they saw the girl alive. So in spite of unbelievers being present, faith and belief shined forth from chapter 5. But here in chapter 6, we have a people whose level is, of unbelief is so great that it's said to be marvellous. It's unbelievable unbelief. Verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his name? Is not this, sorry, what is the wisdom done? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He went away from there and came to his home town. That is, he left Capernaum and went to Nazareth. Nazareth was the hometown of Joseph and Mary. We know that from Luke chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, when the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Well, Luke calls it a city. It's not what we would call a city. It's quite an insignificant small town. In fact, it's so insignificant that Joseph and Mary felt safe there when they returned to Israel from Egypt when Archelaus was king after the death of King Herod and the end of his murderous reign. And isn't that so often the way God does things? He chooses insignificant places and people. Paul makes this point when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. 
Well, Nazareth was so low and despised in the world that in John chapter 1, verse 45, when Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, this is where Jesus grew up. A small town of about 500 people, 40 kilometers from Capernaum. And the title Jesus of Nazareth tells us where he's from, but it's also a derogatory term. It signifies something low, something insignificant, something to be despised. Nazareth was a sort of place where everyone knew everything that happened next door and in the rest of the town. So when this preacher, this teacher, returned home, everyone knew about it and the synagogue was full. Verse 2, on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. Now this is the second time that Jesus has come to Nazareth since the beginning of his public ministry. The first time is recorded in in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet and said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Great stuff. Everyone loved it. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That is, until he started talking about the widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three and a half years, and there was a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, a Gentile leper. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, Here we go again. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're saying these things because of their familiarity with Jesus. They know him, or so they think. They recognized his wisdom and his mighty works. But where did he get these things from? 
And the sense there is, is where did he get them from? He didn't go to our university. Isn't that so often how we think? This rejection isn't unique to Nazareth. It's something quite common. It happens today. God's messengers are rejected when the message they bring clashes with folk religion. That is, people and society's thoughts about what God, if he exists, should and shouldn't do. We see folk religion in the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But we need to remember that the normal way the Christian message comes to us is through a preacher. Paul asks this rhetorical question in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How will they hear without a preacher? We shouldn't think of God speaking to us in visions and voices from heaven, such as Paul heard. Hebrews 1 chapter 1 says, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God spoke to some Old Testament saints in visions and dreams. And there may be times when God uses a dream to bring someone to Christ today. But the dream is only the means of guiding and directing them to a place or a person where they will hear the message of salvation, just like Cornelius the centurion in Acts chapter 10. So be careful about those who say, the Lord spoke to me. Or the Lord said this or that to me. Too often I've heard people say, the Lord spoke to me and I'm at peace about this. When the matter to which they're referring is something that is clearly against the revealed will of God in the Bible. God isn't going to give you a private exclusive word. His revelation is for the whole church. That's why the apostles' words are written down. We just need to believe that revelation. The normal way in which God speaks to us is through his word and through a preacher of that word. And please don't think I'm limiting the word preacher to someone speaking from a pulpit or a platform. The people of Nazareth would have been deeply offended if you had called them unbelievers. They hadn't turned their backs on God or his word. They hadn't refused to listen to God. But when Jesus spoke to them that day, they did refuse to listen to him. They failed to recognize that this preacher on this Sabbath morning, was God's messenger to them. And we reject God when we reject his messengers. 
And we do this for all sorts of reasons, don't we? There's an amazing case of it in 1 Kings chapter 22, where evil King Ahab responds to King Jehoshaphat's question about another prophet, an honest prophet to inquire of. And Ahab said this in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla. Oh, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Oh, that preacher, that preacher, he's too strict. He's always telling people they need to repent and turn to the Lord. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if we don't listen to the word of God, we will never know who or what we are meant to trust. We'll never believe if we don't listen to the messengers that God sends. And that's what's, what's, and that's what's going on here in the synagogue in Nazareth on this very special day. These incredibly privileged people brought up to acknowledge God, to go to church every Sabbath. These people reject the one person who can not only tell them the good news, but he is the good news. And the judgment on the last day will be quite simple. People, God will say to people, you never listened to me. You turned a deaf ear to me. And they'll answer, but when did you speak to me? I never heard you speak. I don't remember turning a deaf ear to you. Well, I sent you preachers. I sent a preacher to your local church. I even sent one to your doorstep. But you didn't listen. Verse 3 tells us why the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus that day. Verse 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him, which is our next point. Not only is the message offensive, but so is the medium or the channel through which it comes. They took offence at him. They were amazed by Jesus' wisdom and his works, but they took offence at him. And it's important to note the word used here. It means to be scandalised. They were scandalized by him. It was beneath their foolish dignity to receive his words and teaching. 
And a big part of their problem is that they know who this preacher is. He's a local man. He only left a couple of years ago. And now he's back here making all these claims and doing miracles. But he's, he's, he's one of the town carpenters. He's only a tradesman. He's just a builder. Maybe some of them are thinking about a door, a window, or a chair that Jesus had made and saying, how can the man who made this be God's preacher, God's messenger, let alone God's Messiah? He's just an ordinary man. And his family are just ordinary people. And they took offence at him. God's message and God's messengers scandalised people. They did it then and they continue to do it today. And I'll just mention three things that continue to offend the logic of man. They scandalise people today. The first is the incarnation. That God became man is scandalous to the mind of man from all walks of life. Even leaders of so-called churches are scandalised in some cases. Surely if God were to visit this world, it would be with an overwhelming sense of power and authority. But no. Jesus comes as a helpless child, born in a stable and nursed by his peasant girl mother. How can almighty God be known to us by a helpless child on his mother's lap? It's fairly obvious from John chapter 8 that most of the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus had accused them of doing the works of their father, the devil, and not Father Abraham's works. And they responded, we were not born in sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. We were not born in sexual immorality. And the inference there is that you were. Yes, the virgin birth. I believe the virgin birth. I believe that Jesus was conceived without a man. And his birth was perfectly normal. And the evidence here in Mark 6 about his peasant girl mother is that she had many other sons and daughters. And we have their names there in verse 3. Secondly, something else that scandalizes man is the redeeming, substitutionary death of Jesus. It's a scandal to Jews and Muslims and to our friends and our neighbors who adhere to many other religions or no religion at all. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and people still do. Greeks look for wisdom, and people still search their intellects. But we preach Christ crucified, and here comes that word again, a stumbling block, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And what is the scandal? Surely it's a man named Jesus hanging naked on a cross, utterly deserted by God and man. But what's actually happening in that scene? What's actually happening is this. The sins of all who will believe are being taken away, yours and mine. Satan is being disarmed. God is being reconciled. The holy God is being reconciled to his rebel subjects. The kingdom of heaven is being opened to all believers. And death, death is being conquered. It's the death of death for all who will believe. But who would have believed it? Yes, it's an offence. And it's a scandal to many people. The third thing I want to say under this heading of they took offence at him concerns God's plan and purpose to to redeem us, to forgive us and make us acceptable to him. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 9 verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And again, that word is there, a scandal, a rock, a stumbling block, a scandal. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. What is the scandal? That we're justified by faith and not by works. The biggest and the most common heresy in all the world is that we stand before God on our own two feet. That all we can present to God is our own sincerity and good works. And that we will get to heaven because we deserve to do so, because we tried hard, we tried our best. And what a tragedy to stand before God on the last day saying, I've always done my best, I've never done any harm to anyone. When everyone knows, we all know 
that both of those statements are lies. We haven't tried our best and we have hurt people. Yes, to this very day, the way of salvation is a scandal for so many people around us. When we tell them that the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life, if they will just put out their empty hand to receive a gift, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. If they will do that and seek forgiveness and salvation through Christ, they will find grace. If you will do what God says and meet him at the cross of Christ, you will find a gracious God who will not turn you away and he will not cast you out. Well, let's return to Mark chapter 6 and a very short point. Mark chapter 6 verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. This is somewhat of a startling statement because on the surface it seems to imply a lack of power on Jesus' part. But God is not limited by the puny will and the unbelief of man. What is limited is the blessing that we receive, which is evidence in verse 5. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that some people were miraculously healed and greatly blessed. True, it's only a few, but it shows that Jesus' power to heal is not limited. This is not a power issue. Think about it today. If we had a hundred people in this room all diagnosed with terminal cancer and only one or two were miraculously healed, we would still celebrate that as a great work of God. A great work of God would have occurred. So what does it mean when it says that Jesus could do no mighty work there? Well, it's referring to the normal way in which God deals with us and the normal way that he answers our prayers. There are many examples, but I point you to Jesus' dealing with the blind men in Matthew chapter 9, and verse 29, when he touched their eyes and said to them, according to your faith will it be done to you. There needs to be that channel of faith in which we connect with Jesus. Faith is a gift of God. But if faith is not there, then we are the ones who are limiting God. Jesus' power can never be limited by our unbelief, but the blessings that we receive are. And God has so designed it that he will give us the good things according to your faith will it be done to you our final point this morning is the cost of unbelief 
verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Unbelief was a driving force in Nazareth 2,000 years ago and it's the driving force of most people around us today in our governments, our places of education, in most families and even in many parts of the visible church. Unbelief in the creator God is the foundation of our society's practice of abortion, euthanasia, same-sex relationships and all the foolishness about gender fluidity. The cost is enormous in dollars but more tragically in human lives have been messed up or destroyed. As we draw to a close, I put before you this crucial question do you believe the scriptures do you believe all 66 books of scripture in the bible 39 old testament books 27 new testament books is genesis still part of your bible Because without it, you don't have a gospel. Do you believe this scripture? Genesis 1.27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Unbelief says no. There is no order, only disorder male or female or X, Y, Z, and you can be whatever you want to be for a fee. And here's something else that's costing us dearly and will cost us much more than money. Let me ask you, do you believe God's promise about his creation in Genesis 8.22? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Again, unbelief says no. It doesn't believe this promise or any other promise of God. Unbelief manipulates people into giving up their freedom with cries of save the planet and climate action. We hear all sorts of nonsense about global warming, CO2 carbon and having a zero carbon footprint. We're told the world's getting hotter. But what we're not told is that the newer measuring stations, where are they like Hawaii, on a volcanic mountain next to a main highway. Plenty of heat and fumes there. Like in concrete jungles of of the city centres. Melbourne has one. Guess what? These places get really hot. In central England... A 300-year-old measuring station tells us that temperatures are well within normal range. Just minor 
fluctuations. Part of this thing that we have is that we don't hear much about child slavery in the Congo and kids dying mining for cobalt that's used in solar panels or balsa wood stripped from Amazon rainforests coated with leaching poison to make wind turbine blades. Every spot where there's those turbines exist, the ground underneath is poisoned. Unbelief is expensive in human terms and in wasted dollars. It's costing us our integrity and it'll cost us our freedom. Unbelief will cost a person their very soul. Jesus said, What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The power of unbelief is incredibly great and it has eternal consequences. Jesus said in John 8:24, "Unless you believe that I am he, that is the promised savior, you will die in your sins." And the encouragement is that God is greater than our sins. God is greater than all this world's unbelief. I want to close with these words from Matthew 28. Words of great encouragement, but there's a, mixed, there's a warning mixed in there as well. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And here's the warning. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. And may God bless his word to our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to learn to live in the light of it. Please be with us as we take this word uh, to our places of uh, our homes, to our places of work and learning. Father, we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.